Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. My word, isn't that exciting to hear that? Isn't it incredible what God can do? It really is. Who would have believed it? And yet, uh, we'll be seeing the scriptural basis for some of these things we've just been hearing about uh, during the course of this week. Well, it is an enormous joy and privilege to be with you here uh, this morning and for the Bible readings this week. Uh, Yes, it is true, uh, in footballing terms, I'm a sweeper because uh, someone else was booked to give the Bible readings and unfortunately uh, had to pull out. Um, But I am honoured to stand in his place and to open up God's word with you. In fact, seeing Trevor Morrow here has made me think this is a ministry God has called me to of substitution. Because I remember uh, quite a few years ago, I don't know if I've ever told you this, Trevor, but you were due to speak at New Horizon in Coleraine. And unfortunately, because of illness, you had to pull out. And uh, Clark was wheeled in in place of the mighty Morrow. And uh, I'll never forget, just before I went up to give the first Bible reading, which Trevor was meant to have been doing, this man came to me and he said, Do you know, Fanta, I'm glad to hear you're doing the Bible readings this week. But we are so sorry Trevor Morrow isn't. Because he is really anointed. (laughs) So I said, thank you, Barnabas. Anyway, it's lovely to see Trevor well and to see him here. And I'm sure some of you know the old story about someone who, like myself, was a substitute preacher because someone else was meant to be preaching. And at the end, he was shaking hands with people at the door of the church. And this old man said to him, you said you were a substitute. What is a substitute? And he thought, well, how do I explain this? And he thought, well, listen, if you have a window broken in your house and that pane is broken and you have to put in a bit of wood, you know, that bit of wood in the window is a substitute. Oh, well, your reverence, you're no substitute. You're a real pane. (laughs) Now, take that whatever way you want. Um, Anyway, I hope and pray I will not be a real pain this week, but will be a vehicle of the Lord in opening up God's word to us. I wonder, have you noticed that we live in a society and in a culture that is obsessed with wanting our bodies to look beautiful? Now, there's nothing wrong with that, let me tell you. I remember hearing Derek Bingham say one time that a famous evangelist was asked by a Christian lady, is it right for Christian women to wear makeup? To which the famous evangelist replied, well, I've never seen an old door that couldn't do with a lack of paint. Um, Now, I can't vouch for that. I would never dare to say something like that. I'm simply reporting what someone else has said. But, you know, when you think of the culture that we live in and the kind of society we live in, people spend hours trying to build the muscles. Pump it up. Pump it up. Everyone wants to look beautiful. Even Miss Piggy wants to look beautiful. And quite frankly, some of us look more like her after we've been on this attempt to look beautiful than we did before it. Billions of dollars are spent every year on dieting, tattoos, 
Uh, oh yes, I got a great example of it. Just look at that. Now, folks, just in case anyone hasn't got this, that is a tattoo on the back of the head of a bald man. I can assure you I will not be getting one of those. That is for sure and certain. People think you're looking at them, whether you're standing in front of them or behind them. Why anybody would want to do that is beyond my understanding. But it's all part of wanting to look beautiful, a body that's different, toning muscles, colouring and doctoring nails, be they fingernails or toenails, work done on your eyelashes, your eyebrows, ear hair, chest hair, and dear knows what other hairs beyond my understanding, people spend are now spending a fortune on cosmetic surgery. Why? Because we want to look beautiful. I heard of one lady who spent £10,000 on a facelift. She came out and heard Osborne's budget and the face dropped. <laughs> Do you know that a few years ago, the United States of, in the United States of America, do you know how much was spent in one year on cosmetics? $22 billion. $22 billion. All on the external. Last year in China, the sale of cosmetics increased to 10 billion pounds. Incredible, isn't it? I have the privilege of travelling around a lot of Ireland, and it never ceases to amaze me now. In Ireland, this island, which is famous for every village having a church and a pub, I can tell you in most of the villages and towns I've gone through, there's now also a beauty parlor, laser treatment, skin treatment, or whatever. I love, and I'm sure it never would have happened in Hamilton Road Presbyterian, I love the story of the pastor who announced one Sunday the following, Weight Watchers will meet at 7pm tomorrow night in the church hall. Please use the large double doors at the side entrance. Well, that wasn't particularly encouraging to anyone who was feeling a little bit sensitive about their size and their weight. But let's press the pause button. As we think of this craving, and it is a craving, in the hearts and minds of any for a beautiful body, and the phenomenal, phenomenal increase in spending in the pursuit of looking beautiful, who was the first one? who had the vision of a body beautiful. It comes as a surprise to many that according to the Bible, God was the first one with a vision of a body beautiful or a beautiful body. And this week, my prayer is that in our Bible readings, you and I will catch something of that vision that God has. It's a wonderful vision. It's an exciting vision, God's vision for a people who are a beautiful people. Let's just pray about that now as we launch into our readings this week. Father, we cannot thank you enough for all that is in your heart. Thank you that you're a God of purpose and a God of vision. And thank you for this vision that you have had from all eternity of a beautiful people.
I pray that through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, as we sit under your word this week, our minds will be enlightened and our hearts warmed as we too catch that vision that you have. In the strong and precious name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. This vision is clearly outlined in Scripture, and could I make um, two pleas at the beginning of this week? One is, if you have your mobile phone with you, and I guess most have, please remember to turn it on at the end of the Bible reading. And secondly, um, please, please bring your Bibles with you this week. Now, I don't mind in which form the Bible Bible comes. In fact, I don't even mind which version you use. Many people use their Bible on their iPhones or their phones now or their iPads. Many are still traditional type. Uh, I'm Anglican, so I play safe and go for both. Um, But please bring your Bible with you this week. You know, not having a Bible at Bible readings is like going into McDonald's and discovering there's no burger in the McDonald's burger. It's, you know, it just doesn't fit. So we are going to be looking and digging deep. And please, please have a Bible with you this week. Of course, the important thing is that it's written in our hearts. And I cannot emphasize strongly enough how important this theme is that we're looking at. Um, I want to make two staggering claims which may surprise some of you about this theme. And uh, here they are. The first claim is this. I submit to you that the desire of God's heart is the creation and formation of of a body beautiful. To me, Scripture clearly teaches that. And secondly, the ultimate destination of all history is a beautiful body, or more specifically, a beautiful bride. And behind all the headlines that we hear every day and the news items we see on our television screens and however else we watch the news, there is a God of purpose at work preparing a people for himself. And the greatest privilege we can have as human beings is to be a part of God's exciting purposes for his beautiful people. Philosophers and historians, amongst others, have discussed and debated the meaning of life, the purpose of the existence of the human race, the goal of human history, But the Bible makes the sensational claim that the purpose of all creation, the outcome of redemption, the goal of history, is a beautiful body and a beautiful bride. In his book, which came out some time ago, called Destined for the Throne, Paul Bilheimer writes this, and I quote, Thus the church, and only the church, is the key to and explanation of history. The church, blood-washed and spotless, is the center, the reason and the goal of all of God's vast creative handiwork. The final and ultimate outcome and goal of events from eternity to eternity, the finished product of all the ages, is the spotless bride of Christ, united with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb and seated with her heavenly bridegroom 
upon the throne of the universe, ruling and reigning with him. Wow. In the last book of the Bible, turn with me to it. A first and a last book are always very easy to find, aren't they? Revelation 21, starting at the first verse. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Revelation 21, verse 1, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The holy city prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And in case we've missed it, Look at how this chapter continues. Look at verse 9 in the same chapter. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And what did he show me? Having been invited to come and see the bride, He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Here it is, folks, the goal of all human history. God gathering to himself a bride for the bridegroom. So many of us, were impressed with the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games last year. Do you remember it? Incredible. But let me tell you this. That and other events like it will pale into total insignificance when we see what God has prepared for those who love him. No event quite like it. Another part of Scripture which picks up and unpacks these wonderful purposes of God. And all that history is moving towards is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Again, we're reminded of the church as a beautiful bride. And in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 5, and we look at this in a moment, where we, in a passage where he's talking about husbands loving their wives, Again, there's a lesson for us to learn here. But Paul also talks about the church as a body. 
And as you know, two of the most frequent pictures of the church in the New Testament are that of a body and of a bride. The church, the body of Christ here on earth. The church, the bride of Christ. And I believe with all my heart, increasingly, increasingly, that we in Ireland, in the church in Ireland today, need to recapture something of this awesome vision of God for his church. Helen and I are constantly meeting people, listening to people. And what are the marks of the conversation? We're disillusioned with the church. We're disappointed with the church. We're angry with the church. We're giving up on the church. Only in the last 48 hours we listen to someone, heartbroken, as that person looks at their church. And I believe we need to rediscover something of what God intends the church to be, something of what the church is under God, And with a wholehearted, unreserved commitment, we resolve and determine that we are going to be a part of his body beautiful and his beautiful bride so that more and more people see something of Christ in the church today. Paul speaks of this mighty vision in this letter to the Ephesians. He notes that God is so working out his purposes and plans That when Jesus returns, he, the bridegroom, will present to himself a radiant church. A church that is without stain or wrinkle or cellulite or pimples or any other blemish. Holy, blameless. Just look at Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 25. Ephesians 5, 25. If you've got to Galatians, turn right and you'll find Ephesians. If you've got to Philippians, turn left and you'll find Ephesians, okay? Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. I know and you know that some find those truths hard to believe about the church of Jesus Christ. Let's be honest about it. There are times when we in the church don't look and don't behave like a beautiful bride without spot or blemish. Sometimes the bride of Christ, the church of God, is marked not by beauty but by bickering and biting. A group of people bruised and bleeding. 
not at all like a bride, and certainly not like the bride of Christ, as God wants his bride to be. Some years ago, in one of Chuck Swindle's books, I came across a very powerful story which he had uh, recorded, written by a lady called Karen Maines. It's a parable. The title of her story is this, A Brawling Bride. She describes that moment in the wedding service, and all of us who have been at a wedding can think of that moment. The families are gathered, the guests are there. Um, We were at a wedding here a few weeks ago, sitting down there, and exactly the same happened. Men, the bottom line is this. On a wedding day, nobody's interested in us, quite frankly. They're all waiting for the bride. It's the bride they want to see. And the organist stops playing because the bride is ready to come forward. And Karen Main writes of the congregation, and that moment comes, and they turn round, because that's what happens, guys, isn't it? They turn round to look at her, and they look round at the bride at the back about to process up, and suddenly there is a gasp of horror throughout the congregation. For what do they see? Well, this is what they see. A smiling woman, not dressed in elegant, stainless white dress, but rather a bride who is limping down the aisle, not walking. Her hair is disheveled, her nose is bleeding, one eye is purple and swollen. Ugly bruises cover her arms, and her dress, which was once beautiful, is soiled and torn. And in the story, Karen Maines writes, Surely the bridegroom deserves better than this. And then the exorcet missile. Alas, his bride, the church, has been fighting again. Beautiful bride or brawling bride? That is the question, isn't it? And I wonder as people in Ireland look at the church today in Ireland, what do they see? As people look at that local expression of a church of which you and I are a part, what do they see? Something of the beauty of Christ in the relationships between people in that church? Or do they see a group of people bickering, brawling, bruised and bruising others? My goodness, we need to hear in the church those words which became famous at the end of James Young's TV programs. And I know, having said that, this immediately dates me. Because some of the young people here won't even know who I'm talking about when I talk about James Young. But do you remember what he used to say at the end of those TV programs? This is the way it ended every week. Stop fighting! And I mean this reverently. God says to his people in the church today, stop fighting. How did Jesus 
say the world is to know that we are followers of him by our love for one another that hurts doesn't it only yesterday on Sunday sequence and by the way I thought Ramaz was superb on Sunday sequence yesterday is that you my brother well, thank you so much. It was as clear as a bell. It was quite powerful. Um, Ramaz was interviewed about Egypt, and it was really quite powerful. Thank you. But on that same program, there was an atheist journalist from Northern Ireland, or commentator, I missed his name, so I, I don't know what it was, but he said something that really, really, really hurt me. Do you know what he said? He said, the least forgiving people I know in Northern Ireland are Christians. The least forgiving people I know are Christians. 24 hours ago that was said. Public radio, Radio Ulster. May God forgive us if that's the reputation we have. Now I know, and you know, so many people where that is simply not true. But sadly, there are times when it is true. We long for the day when the bride of Christ will not only be presented to Jesus Christ as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle, but we long for the time when in our relationships with one another and in our local fellowships, we're showing something of the beauty of Christ rather than being a brawling bride. Terrible strife is tearing Christ's church apart in some parts of the world today. Christians tragically sometimes have more of a reputation for being angry, and it's not a righteous anger, for being angry rather than loving. With some people we're known as a group of people who fight over the most obscure differences. And those who serve overseas in cross-cultural mission, we're not immune from this either. I quote from one mission observer, missionaries are active participants in this ugly combat. Criticism just seems to gush out of our pores. Missionaries squabble over doctrine, codes of conduct, strategic concept, and yes, office politics all the way from the team overseas right back to the home office at home. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Brothers and sisters, we need to repent. This is not the way God wants it to be. And I believe this week God will lead some of us to repentance as we look at our lives in the light of his word as we look at the church as God sees the church. And I wonder, in Ireland, on this island, do we as a church need to repent? I remember the days when there were thousands of groups longing for Bible study in the Republic of Ireland. And some of us wouldn't cross the border to teach the Bible, and they wanted us to. Why? Because, well, we didn't want to cross the border. 
May God forgive us. I will never forget a train journey to Dublin. We were working and serving in Coleraine at the time and I'd driven early in the morning to get the seven o'clock train to Dublin uh, for a church meeting in Dublin and just south of Newry the train stopped. Well, you know the score when that happens. There's some object on the railway line and we sat for a long time. If you're ever on a train when that happens, people suddenly start talking to each other. And this very attractive young girl sitting beside me started talking to me and I to her, I had my clerical collar on so she knew immediately what I was. And during the course of this fascinating conversation, and you need to know this girl was a first class honours graduate from UCD in Dublin. Fascinating girl brilliant mind and I said to her I said I want you to be really honest with me I said what does a young girl like you in her early 20s think of the church in Ireland today do you know what she said I've never forgotten it this was life changing for me she said I believe in God but I don't see any connection between the church and God I broke my heart after that. I was giving my life to this church. I don't see any connection between the church and God. What are we about? The church of Jesus Christ? Beautiful bride? Amazing body? If we even capture a fraction of of what the book of Ephesians is all about, then I can tell you we will live differently, we will think differently, we will act differently. Martin Lloyd-Jones has written this, and I quote, much of the trouble in the church today is due to the fact that we are so subjective, so interested in ourselves, so egocentric, having forgotten God and having become so interested in ourselves, we become miserable and wretched and spend our time in shallows and in miseries. The message of the Bible from beginning to end is designed to bring us back to God, to humble us before God, and to enable us to see our true relationship to him. And that is the great theme of Ephesians. Let's just look at some verses from Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to ask ourselves the question, what is our calling as this body beautiful, the body of Christ. What is our calling? What are, some of, what, what are some of the things that God has called us to do and to be as part of his bride and his body? Well, look at what Paul says, verse 1 in Ephesians ch- chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I urge you, notice that. And notice too, Paul is writing this as a prisoner. He is modeling in his own life what he's beseeching his brothers and sisters in Ephesus to embark on. He's not somebody who isn't practicing what he's preaching. There's a coherence, there's a unity, there's a cohesion between the teaching of the Apostle Paul and the life and the living of the Apostle Paul. He's a prisoner for the Lord. 
because of his commitment to Jesus. And he says to these Christians in Ephesus, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. My, how different the church is when we live that way, isn't it? You know people and I know people who are living the kind of life that is worthy of their calling and oh boy, it's a privilege to know them. It's a joy to be with them and we leave their presence inspired, enthused, encouraged. Are you and I those kinds of people? That kind of person? Honestly before God this morning, how's our Christian life going at the moment? Honestly. Yes, I know we're all at a Bible reading and that was a wise choice. But how's our life going with the Lord? Are we kind of drifting a bit? Disappointed? Hurting? Well, maybe God has us here this morning so that we hear his voice calling us back to living a life that is worthy of our calling and worthy of him. And then Paul goes on to describe some of the marks of Christ's body beautiful, some of the qualities that are evident, obvious, well-known in the life of the Christian man or woman or young person. He says in verse 2 in Ephesians 4, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Humility. Well, there wasn't much humility in the young man who prayed, Lord, keep me humble because you know how important I am. There's real humility, isn't it? I don't think so somehow. I suggest to you that humility is a rare quality in the lives of people in our Western culture. Indeed, in the ancient world, humility was not a popular quality at all. Paul is teaching something here that is actually countercultural. Humility in the kind of world and culture St. Paul lived in, humility was regarded as distasteful. It was often despised. Pride was prized and extolled and exalted. And so when Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, came into this scene and lived as a servant and washed the disciples' feet, that was revolutionary. That was a humble act of service. And Jesus, the servant king, gave a whole new high-octane value to humility. The word in the Greek literally means lowliness of mind. How does it work out? I'll tell you one way it works out. It works out in us valuing other people and recognizing their worth and respecting other people. We do not promote ourselves, and yet part of our culture, let's be honest, it's now all about promoting yourself. If you don't believe me, watch The Apprentice. It's all about promoting yourself. That's what it is. Trying to get other people to find out how good you are. Contrast that with Jesus, the servant king. Be completely humble, says Paul. Be gentle. Gentleness 
The gentleness he's talking about here is the gentleness of the strong. It is strength under control. It is that gentleness that we see in Jesus, who was the strongest person who ever lived. What does he say next? Be patient. Long-suffering towards aggravating, annoying people. That's hard. I find that a stretch. Do you not? You know the kind of person in your church, you see them coming and you go on a diversion. Or you suddenly fall before God on the floor. Patience. Is patience a mark of your life and mine? Many of you know I am a fanatical supporter of Manchester United. I know I'm immediately causing division in the camp and marring the fellowship. But anyway, that's the way it is. We all have our weaknesses. And in fact, I heard in Stephen Nolan this morning when we were driving here, he's just got a season ticket for Man United and he's going there tonight. I'm breaking the 10th commandment. Anyway, let me just show you something. That wonderful retired manager that we had for 26 years, Alex Ferguson, was not often known for his patience. Just watch what happened when a bus didn't stop for him. (laughs) Just in case you missed it, I'll actually go again, but do you notice the patience that's being exercised here? I love that. I could show that ten times, but anyway, I won't. (laughs) But we laugh at it. But hey, listen, how do you and I respond and react sometimes when things don't just work out the way we want it? Does patience kick in? Or does impatience come in like a tsunami? I wonder what some of our family would say to that. Would their answer be the same as ours? Be patient, one of the marks of the body beautiful. Another flavor, incidentally, of the fruit of the Spirit, patience. Men, I wonder, would our wife describe us as a patient husband if we're married? The people we work with, are we known in the office for our patience? Or do they know us as people who fly off the handle so fast? And of course, what's the glue that holds all these things together? Well, it's the last quality Paul mentions here, bearing with one another in love. Love is the source of it all, isn't it? And when we love Jesus as he loves us, our lives are marked by humility, gentleness, and patience. One Christian leader wrote this, and I quote, I have attended many churches, both as a member and as a pastor. Down through the years, I have made a surprising discovery. Most of the Christians I know are disappointed with their churches, finding them either too traditional or too modern. The sermons are too theological or not theological enough. The people are cliquish. In the end, the root problem is always the same. It's the people. That's always somebody else too, isn't it? 
Yet Sunday after Sunday, these believers returned to their pews, expecting God to meet them there once again. Some might view such attendance as an act of futility or an exercise in wishful thinking. I believe it is a work of grace. Please hear again the words of the Apostle Paul. He wants to bring this home and hammer it home. Make every effort, make every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Be eager. The Greek verb is utterly emphatic. We are to spare no effort. This is a call to constant, diligent activity. It's like the Nike ad. Just do it. Don't talk about it. Just do it. Make every effort to maintain the unity, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What are you and I doing to keep and foster unity amongst God's people? Is there someone to whom we need to say sorry? And as soon as I've asked that question, somebody has come into your minds. Is there somebody to whom we need to say sorry? Well, just do it. Are our lives a catalyst of unity amongst Christians? Or are we a focus of division? John Stott writes this. It is simply impossible with any shred of Christian integrity to go on proclaiming that Jesus by his cross has abolished old divisions and created a new single humanity of love while at the same time we are contradicting our message by tolerating racial or social or other barriers within our church fellowship. We need to get the failures of the church on our conscience, to feel the offense of Christ to Christ and the world, which these failures are, to weep over the credibility gap between the church's talk and the church's walk, to repent of our readiness to excuse and even condone our failures, and to determine to do something about it. I wonder if anything is more urgent today for the honor of Christ and for the spread of the gospel than that the church should be and should be seen to be what by God's purpose and Christ's achievement it already is, a single new humanity, a model of human community, a family of reconciled brothers and sisters, Palestinians and Jews, Jews and Gentiles, people who love the Father and love each other, an evident dwelling place of God's Spirit. Only then will the world believe in Christ as peacemaker. Only then will God receive the glory due to his name. I believe with all my heart that God is saying from the depths of his being, I want my bride back. I want my church back. I don't want my church to be like Hosea, running after other lovers. I want my body, my bride, to be beautiful. Christ loves the church, Paul told us in Ephesians 5. Christ gave himself for her to make her holy and clean. And yet the reality is that you and I are sometimes like Gomer, the wife of Hosea, and we've run off with other lovers. Other things, other people have taken Christ's place 
in our hearts. And he's calling us back. Christ wants his church to be beautiful, not ugly. United, not divided. Clean, not dirty. Holy, not tarnished by sin and selfishness. And I really do believe that's a cry of God's heart. I want you back. Let me finish with three conclusions or three keys coming out of our Bible study this morning and then just a final thought. Number one, God is calling us to be lovers of the church if we claim to be lovers of Christ. Have we not seen this in Ephesians and we will see this during the week? There is no such thing in the Bible as a privatized gospel. Ephesians is... It's a letter about the church and God's purposes. It's a gospel of the church. And will you and I commit ourselves to be a people who love the church, even when it's difficult, even when it's stretching, even when we get rub each other up the wrong way? Are we willing to do what Jesus did and lay down our lives for each other? And always remember this. The church is a group of people that Jesus purchased with his own blood and when I'm tempted to say something I shouldn't about another believer I think to myself this person was purchased with the blood of Christ and boy does that make a difference in our attitude to that person secondly will we commit ourselves to God's cause we all love to be committed to some bigger cause don't we something that's going to make a difference, something that's worthwhile. And what is God's big cause? What's his passion? It's the church. It's the people of God. It's the coming of his kingdom. It's preparing this bride who's so beautiful. Do you want to be a part of that bigger plan, that exciting purpose of God? Yes, of course you do. Yes, we'll get frustrated with the church. Yes, things won't work out the way they always, we always want them to, Look at Jesus and the 12 disciples. It didn't always work out with the 12 disciples the way Christ would have wanted it to, but he stuck with them. And let's be honest, sometimes we don't just have bruises. We're the ones who cause the bruises in the lives of our brothers and sisters. But when we catch this vision that's God's vision of loving the church in the way he does, then we want to give our lives to the bridegroom because we see and begin to understand that he gave his life for us to make us holy and thirdly I wonder if you ever thought of it this way God doesn't have any other plan that I can see in scripture this is his plan it's the church the body the bride beautiful Creation has no other aim. History has no other goal. God has no other plan from the very foundation of the world and indeed from before it until the dawn of the eternal ages. God has been working towards one great event, one supreme event, the glorious wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the bridegroom Christ will look at his bride and he will see a beautiful bride. Please pray that after this week we will be a more beautiful church, a more beautiful local church, a more beautiful Christian. 
Well, I said I'd finish with a final thought, and this is it. I remember over the years, as I've listened to many sermons, sometimes hearing preachers say, we go right back to Genesis chapter 2. I've heard different preachers say, when God created woman and Adam looked at Eve, he said, wow, this is it. And in preparation for today, I did a little bit of research to see if that's just preacher's talk or if that's what Genesis really says. And you know something? They're right. They're absolutely right. Our English translations of the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 2 totally miss the impact of Adam's response when Eve was created. And when Adam saw Eve for the first time, this beautiful creation of God, in the original Hebrew, Adam literally exclaims, Wow, this is it. The nearest I've ever come to that is when I saw my wife as a bride on the 26th of June, 1971, and I thought, Clark, you're punching above your weight. Wow. Brothers and sisters, one day, and that day will be at Christ's choosing, the new Adam, the perfect Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, will stand as the bridegroom beside his bride, the church, you and me, and he look at us. without blemish, radiant, holy, blameless. What a thought. What a thought. God grant that through his church today, through your life and mine, people will catch something of the beauty of Christ in the beauty of his bride. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot thank you enough that by your grace we are called to be a part of your bride. From the bottom of our hearts, we say thank you. Forgive us, Lord, for when we get it wrong. And so fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, your spirit of purity and holiness, that every day we will be more like Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.